Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. Monty Belmonte is currently on vacation, so I am all alone here in the studio. And I'm too, I'm not panicking, not panicking at all. Later in the show, we'll chat with NEPM's Kari and Jerry about Nelson Stevens, an art visionary with strong ties to Springfield in more ways than one, and whose work you can currently see at the Springfield Museums. And we're about to embark on a journey, a journey of many things Juneteenth this week as we stride towards its second anniversary as a federal holiday. So later in the show, we'll talk to A.J. Enchil, president and founder of the Berkshire Black Economic Council, about I Am Afro, a street fair for all peoples happening this weekend. And as Juneteenth is a new-ish holiday to some, we want to hear how you interact with the holiday. Maybe your family has celebrated it before. Maybe this is your first time hearing about it at all. Either way, send an email to thefab413 at nepm.org or you can text us at 1-800-639-9120. But right now we're headed into the cosmos with Mr. Universe, Dr. Salman Hamid, who is with us right now, which is the coolest because usually we get you in sort of a distant thing, but I get you like in the moment, which Monty never really does in the same way. I think it's cool. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. No. And uh, Monty is just on the beach, so you know, <laughs> we have to be here. <laughs> Making the best of this situation. And that situation would be space quarantine? <laughs> yes. So this is a, actually an interesting story that, uh, that has uh, captured attention. Uh, this is a um, history of science paper. So usually, you, it's not that often that you say, hey, there is a paper that got published in one of the leading history of science journals, ISIS, in that sense. And uh, the paper is called One Small Step for Men, One Giant Leap for Moon Microbes. <laughs> and it looks at Full full props to uh, to the uh, to the title, and uh, the paper actually looked at uh, some of the uh, archival records from the Apollo program, uh, and what they found was when Apollo astronauts came back, and for those uh, who think we didn't go to the moon, uh, no, we did just in case, like you know. <laughs> so when when Apollo astronauts came back uh, from the moon, especially Apollo eleven, that was the famous uh, case in that sense they had to go first through a 21 days of quarantine. And uh, Apollo 12, Apollo 14 astronauts, they did that too. And after Apollo 14, um, it, it was clear that there are no microbes on the moon. And so we don't have to worry about it. But up until then, uh, especially for Apollo 11, that was the first time astronauts had come back. There was an elaborate program. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of, theatrics involved with that in the sense that here are the astronauts that come back and yet they are in these and you may have seen pictures of, of sort of like you know astronauts looking from behind a glass wall a glass door the same and, sort of theatrics uh, so that would make people think that the whole thing got faked <laughs> well <laughs> that's true but in this particular case yeah so that was the mo mo mobile uh, quarantine facility or uh, since nasa goes with acronyms so mqf <laughs> and uh, this was sort of like the it sounds like a horrible swear uh, sort of like... <laughs> <laughs> probably that was in there too and and so and in fact uh, Neil Armstrong celebrated famously his 39th birthday in quarantine so you know he's been to the moon he comes back and he cannot even celebrate his birthday uh, at his home uh, but this paper claims that it is so hard to prevent microbes 
from coming back if there were microbes. So part of the thing is that, you know, that, well, there weren't. We know that moon uh, is sterile. Moon doesn't have microbes. So that is great. But the reason why they were really worried about was what if there are microbes and we bring them back? This is called back contamination, meaning to say if we bring samples from space or or they can just come into it. I mean, we, we get asteroids and comets that come to Earth and you also have every day tons of material. I mean, uh, like, you know, that, that actually falls through our atmosphere, but most of it burns up uh, in the atmosphere and you see shooting stars and mm -hmm. things like that. So we don't have to worry about it. Nevertheless, you can think about that microbes can come in. So that was the fear. Uh, that in the early 1960s, uh, some people thought Carl Sagan uh, amongst one of them, <laughs> we thought maybe life may have originated uh, on the moon as well, or, or, or maybe transported from the earth uh, in the early formation of the moon, and it may have survived there. And if that is the case, it has, it has its different evolutionary path. And if astronauts bring back those microbes, they can cause, uh, which is true. If that might have been the case, then it could have caused some sort of like, you know, moon fever or lunar fever or whatever. Like, you know, uh, maybe be, be lunatics. But anyway, so, so, so the point was in the sense that that was the fear. So this paper actually says that the way they did that, there was a lot of show about sort of like, you know, being behind in this mobile MQF and uh, astronauts going there. They actually had a biological sort of like, you know, garment uh, that they, uh, biological isolation garments that they wore uh, that took them to the uh, facility and so on and so forth. However, it looks like that the, if there were microbes, this quarantine mechanism that they had put in place, it would not have been effective. So and what's what is effective? more damning? Yeah. yeah. What's not effective well, about what they, they were doing? Well, first of all, uh, I mean, humans, I mean, we, if, we ourselves, I mean, that that just, we carry so much stuff back, like, you know, so that in itself, I mean, we are just, I mean, of course, we are a bit of a microbiome, like whole thing is there. And if they would have picked something up, it would have been really hard to isolate. But the bigger problem was the spacecraft itself. The one that landed, actually, it landed in the ocean and they opened the hatch and whatever it was, it would have mixed up with water. <laughs> and it mixed up with other things. So the thing, so the very fundamental steps, sort of like the way their landing was, which was splashing into the ocean. And as the spacecraft is coming down, it was also supposed to vent uh, in their in the Earth's atmosphere. So there were many places where uh, it could have contaminated. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is how not. How is this not the worst part? <laughs> NASA scientists knew that. <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> like meaning to say, like, you know, that it's not an anti system. So that's the paper argues that uh that they knew but they still went through. And it, there is a larger point that this paper makes, and that is about the fact that oftentimes like the contamination from the moon and uh, existential crises, the probability was low, but the threat was existential. Hmm. And what the author argues is that oftentimes in the sciences, what people do, and we are seeing that a little bit from AI stuff as well, that people tend to, uh, although in AI, I think they go the other way, but but anyway, like, you know, that when for scientists themselves, what they try to do is they tend to downplay 
low probability but existential crisis in favor of oh we really have to worry about something which is not as threatening so they say that you know that the way so there is a lesson uh, in which sort of like you know that how apollo program handled contamination crisis that we were lucky mm-hmm. uh, uh, uh regarding the moon the moon is sterile they were and and as i mentioned apollo 11 12 and 14 astronauts did that and after that it wasn't the case but there are real cases uh that maybe we may be ha- facing and that is um from mars so mars we know there was water uh, uh for a while on the surface of mars probably oceans as well and it's quite likely that life started there uh even before earth it's possible and there are plans so right now there is a rover perseverance rover that is uh roving around uh, in an uh, in a crater uh, actually it's right out of the crater uh, but where there was water in fact it recently found evidence for a high flowing river which is really cool. what another planet awesome. we actually know like you know, the way the the rocks are uh sort of like you know slanted and the way the rocks have been curved it seems like that they have been carved out by a flowing river almost like glacial sort of this crater it more than that actually but it, the water this river flowed into this large crater and the crater then got filled up and it flowed from the other side as well and so that's why perseverance rover picked that site to go and it is looking for that's even more potential cool. <laughs> signs for raw materials for life but also <laughs> what it is doing is it is actually taking samples mm-hmm. and leaving them uh in different places and the idea behind that is that there is going to be a second part of the mission this is expected i think right now around 2030 uh that it's a nasa and european space agency joint mission it's going to go and pick up those samples and then bring it back to earth and as you know so 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 it depends upon if we were talking about the cool is there life on mars i would be saying it's very cool that we'll be bringing martian samples to earth where we can use electron microscopes or microscopes and so on and so forth we can really analyze with the top of the line which we cannot take a laboratory up to mars but we can have <laughs> all these laboratories here right here but now that we are talking in a different context about contamination one of the big challenges is that we make sure that it is handled in a way it is brought in a way which doesn't bring any microbes that uh that can cause a bit of a problem. This sounds like a thing that would definitely erupt in our post-covid world where we've recently had a rather large-scale pandemic that we're starting to see become endemic that we would be able, we might take this a little bit more seriously possibly bringing pathogens back from Mars on whatever exploratory measures we were taking. Yeah and uh, and so, so one other thing i should mention uh and then i will give you one other example of what we can do to others but one <laughs> other example is uh people had thought that the uh influenza uh virus uh in early 20th century 1918 uh, uh that was the precedence there was a comet that had come close and uh, the comet's tail apparently had gone through sort of like the earth and some people thought that it's plausible that like you know that that may have come from space and in fact even with covid uh there are some i'm i'm trying to pick up sort of like you know um diplomatic words unorthodox <laughs> scientists who come up with 
with uh, ideas that, like, you know, are interesting and you go like, okay, all right, well, that's interesting. I don't know if it's true or not, but. Uh, I mean, I think I would have uh, rather had Comet Fever than the flu. That sounds way but more true. fun. But, 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 but this. <laughs> the flu is pretty terrible. Uh, his, his name is Vikrama Singe. He argued actually that uh, actually uh, he had worked with another famous uh, astronomer, Fred Hoyle, and they believed that there are microbes out in space. And so life probably got seeded from space as well. And so they continue to believe in that. And Vikramasinghe had claimed that the COVID may have come from space. And so, again, because there is material that falls onto uh, the Earth's um, atmosphere, uh, about 100 uh, tons of material every day, and so he said, well, it could have been, it, 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 I mean, again, there was a difference. It could have come from there, although he went a little bit farther, uh, further and said, like, you know, that it did come from there. So those claims are there. We don't have any evidence for even a single microbe anywhere in the world. But what we are, uh, where I want to sort of like, you know, close down the, the loop is that we have to, just like we have to worry about sort of like, you know, we used to worry about carnivorous animals eating us and now we have to worry about how to save them in the same way we have to worry about spacecrafts that we send to for example uh, jupiter's moon europa which we know there is a liquid water ocean underneath and there were concerns about it like a uh, uh, galileo mission in the 1990s which extended up to early 2000s when it was ending the mission that we did not want to just run out of fuel and then accidentally crash into one of the moons of Jupiter. Even Io, which is mostly volcanic, because we know that life can actually uh, thrive even near volcanic vents here on Earth. So the Galileo spacecraft was deliberately then crashed into Jupiter. Uh, and recently Cassini spacecraft, which was orbiting Saturn, and it has its moon Enceladus, which is which also has liquid water ocean that has plumes that are coming out. James Webb Space Telescope recently took a picture of its plumes. And same thing, because, so this is forward contamination uh, rather than back, backward contamination, whereas we are worried that we can introduce our microorganisms to these uh, moons and our microbes can take over uh, and destroy the life forms over there. And also from scientific perspective, it's going to, I mean, like, you know, once you contaminate, then there is no way of uncontamination. So, so there is, we have to worry about backward contamination, which is also part of planetary defense. It sounds a little more sort of like, you know, gung-ho planetary defense. <laughs> we worry about back contamination. And we also worry about forward contamination because we know microbes, some of the microbes can survive harsh conditions of space and can travel. Is that one of the things that they're going to end up looking at with the perseverance uh, exploration too with with all of these samples that it's setting out in the crater to see whether or not our microbes are also interacting with anything that might be there? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it will be a huge discovery if we do find a microbe, Martian microbe. I mean, first of all, that would be enormous. Uh, there is a bigger likelihood that we may find forms of past life. Uh, you know, that life existed when there was water and now there are just these fossils or remains or whatever. And we are talking about microbes, so not like skeletons and things like that, but just like <laughs> microbial fossils. But what uh, if it was skeletons? <laughs> well, that, <laughs> and, and some people do believe that, <laughs> that would be really interesting. 
Uh, Halloween but, on Mars. <laughs> but here, here is the here is the thing. What the the, the first question? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a biologist. So I don't know the first question, but certainly one of the first questions <laughs> that come to my mind, or at least my mind, would be whether that life is similar to the Earth or not. So, for example, whether uh, can we figure out? Can we tell if it is using the same molecules as Earth on Earth, like, for example, DNA or RNA. Now, if it is similar to Earth, uh, there is a possibility that life may have started on either Earth or Mars and may have we may have exchanged materials. And it's also possible that it may have been sort of like, you know, two separate origins, but using the same molecules like DNA and RNA in there. But if it is different, meaning to say, if it is based on a different molecule, that would be really cool. Here we are, two neighboring planets, one. So that, that would mean that life can use many different pathways and uh, of the chemicals that it uses. And that would be a really cool discovery. So no matter what you find, that would be really cool. Uh, I mean, of course, if you don't find anything, that would be a little sadness associated <laughs> with that. But I hope we do find life. And I hope it doesn't kill us. <laughs> I hope that it doesn't kill us either. <laughs> Thank you for hanging out with me today, Mr. Universe, Dr. Salman Hamid. Even if it was a little terrifying, still good. <laughs> <laughs> Later this hour, AJ Angel of the Berkshire Black Economic Council is going to join us talking about bringing Juneteenth festivities to North Adams this weekend. And up next, NEPM's Kari and Jerry and I will talk about community art and Nelson Stevens' part in bringing that to Springfield. You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. Nelson Stevens was an artist and educator renowned for creating powerful rhythmic compositions that celebrate black life and reveal his technical mastery of the figure. From 1972 through 2003, while teaching at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Stevens lived in Springfield. In the early 1970s, he initiated a groundbreaking public art project that resulted in the creation of over 30 murals throughout the city, most of which have been lost. Like Stephen's colorful paintings, the murals promoted black empowerment and brought the pride and activism associated with the black arts music movement to Western Massachusetts. NEPM's Kari and Jerry took a look at the exhibit currently at the Springfield Museums, highlighting Stephen's body of work. The exhibit was supposed to be a homecoming celebration for Nelson Stevens. Unfortunately, he died in July 2022 at age 83, just three months before its premiere in Maryland. I first became aware of Professor Nelson Stevens as a student at UMass Amherst in the 1970s. Even for an untrained eye like mine, his work and style was immediately recognizable. I've heard his work described, I think appropriately, as kaleidoscopic. Maggie North is curator of art at the Springfield Museums. It is fractured and rhythmic and beautiful in the way that he painted, in his words, using colors as values. 
North says Stevens described his paintings as anthems in praise of people. Most of the subjects are friends and other community folk, as well as more public figures, particularly musicians. North says Stevens was also listening to music while painting, especially jazz, which was integral to the work. His daughter, Nadia Stevens, says her dad's work is bold. Unafraid, unapologetic, black-centric. It is not an easy task to paint black people without using the color brown. Um, these people are unmistakably black folks, and there is nearly brown inside, which is pretty incredible. Color wrapping. What is that? So I saw a quote from my dad. We come from the rhythmic color wrapping style of black folks. He said that in around the 70s, and I think that his art makes music when you look at it. But there was a friend of his, Valerie Maynard, and this is the other version of the origin of the story, and apparently she came up to him at an event, and she's like, oh, so you're the color wrapper. So she might have been it, or my dad might have came up with it on his own. We're not too sure, but it's clear when you look at his work, it is like wrapping in color. Nelson Stevens came to UMass in 1972 as a member of the newly established Afro-American Studies Department. He was in his early 30s, but had already garnered a reputation as a member of the Chicago-based collective Afro-Cobra, or African Commune of Bad Relevant Artists. Aligned with the burgeoning black arts movement, the collective aimed to create positive images of people using bright, vibrant, so-called Kool-Aid colors. Eric Key is director of the arts program at the University of Maryland Global Campus, which brought the collection to Springfield. Key says Stevens always had a statement in his work. Very kind of laissez-faire, not, not necessarily in your face, but you'll see black power, you'll see political voting rights, you'll see music, you'll see beauty, and particularly beauty of the black woman. Uh, because Nelson grew up during this time when black wasn't beautiful, but it was his job to make it beautiful, and he did through his artwork. Stevens' work wasn't limited to the classroom or the canvas. He and his students also painted more than 30 murals in Springfield. Most have either been painted over or are no longer visible. However, two of Stevens' murals were repainted last year, and efforts are underway to find and catalog more to recreate. Kiara Hill, a UMass professor and a consultant to the exhibit, says for Stevens, taking the art to neighborhoods was critical. Yes, he was painting alongside his students, but folks who were just walking up and down the street who had input, he would listen, you know. Um, if there were kids who wanted to just kind of sit in the atmosphere, they would do that. It was a community collaboration, and I think that is very much so who Nelson is or was and what he tried to pass on to his students. One of those students attending a recent opening reception is Maral Sakoyan. A video of a visual arts class by Stevens she recorded in 2002, shortly before his retirement, is featured in the exhibit. She says that experience continues to influence her current work as a filmmaker. In corporate America, we have to play this role, and we all know that. Um, almost like we're acting, you know, we can't be emotional, we can't show our true feelings or thoughts a lot of times. And that was something that I think Professor Stevens made us realize that we didn't have to do that. We could just be authentic to our own selves and, and let our creativity blossom in that true essence, which I really appreciated. Mary Custard is another former student. 
now a dean at Amherst Regional High School. She says the exhibit brings back great memories of a class she took with Stevens publishing Drum, a literary arts magazine which featured many of his works. The colors and the way he used the colors on the covers of the Drum and in, in the insert just it's a wonderful experience to be here, to see so much of his work in one place. It's bittersweet because he passed before we could do this with him, but we do it in his honor now. Indeed, recognition and subsequent compensation for Stephen's work has been late in coming. His daughter Nadia says it wasn't until the last five years of his life that his work began to be shown at some of the art world's most prestigious venues, including the Tate Modern in London, the Venice Biennale, and Art Basel in Miami. When we were at the Broad in L.A. in, I think it was September of 2019, I said, how do you feel about this? I did my own little interview with him, and he said, ambivalent. And I think it's just because this recognition should have come a long time ago. And I asked him what he attributed his newfound recognition to, and he said it was the Black Lives Matter movement. So the same way the civil rights movement birthed the black arts movement, Black Lives Matter created a resurgence in the appreciation of African-American art. In 2021, Springfield honored its one-time resident by designating June 12th as Nelson Stevens Day. The Springfield Museums says it will continue to honor Stevens this year with events throughout the summer. The exhibit, Color Wrapping, continues until September 3rd. For New England Public Media, I'm Karin Jiri. And here to chat more about Nelson Stevens and his work is NEPM's own Karin Jiri. Thank you for coming in on Nelson Stevens Day to talk about Nelson Stevens, who you knew, which I am genuinely jealous of because this man sounds A, larger than life, and B, like, just an all-encompassing character you kind of want to be near. Was that true? <laughs> yeah, well, that was kind of true. And, <laughs> and thank you for having me. It feels kind of strange to be on the other side. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to ask you. you. I, said, I heard rumors that, that, that Bill Murray was dating Khalees until I realized <laughs> different person, different singer. Different spelling, yes, but nevertheless. Yes. <laughs> getting back to Nelson. Yes, I did know him uh, as, as a student. And then, of course, after, uh, over the years, uh, even even had the uh, fortune of attending his wedding reception in, and, uh, and visiting his home here in Springfield in the McKnight section. He was one of the coolest people I've ever had the opportunity to meet. Uh, just the way he moved through space, his walk. Uh, he had um, a, a certain sense of style and, and grace. And when I say cool, I, I think of uh, the late uh, sportscaster Stuart Scott who said, as cool as the other side of the pillow. There we go. He was that cool. <laughs> and he had this mellifluous voice and funny too. And we, we, we connected really through music as well. Uh, I'm just... Um, I felt really privileged to have uh, to have known him. Music is a giant part of his entire catalog. Not his whole catalog, but there's like those triptychs that he's done on Doors, both jazz or where jazz is like a centerpiece, and his many pieces on Stevie Wonder. Mm -hmm. Quite a few on Stevie. <laughs> Quite a few on Stevie. At the reception, I remember his daughter telling a particular story about meeting 
Stevie, and it was lovely. I cannot paraphrase well. <laughs> that was a while ago. But we talk more about like the intersection of music and his work and his connections with people, perhaps. Well, it, it's known that he he painted while listening to music, particularly jazz, and and I think John Coltrane was was a big. Uh, part of that uh, that repertoire that he listened to uh, that's something that that intrigued me about about how people do what they do how they're inspired and of course it it continues to inspire me um, the but but looking at his works I see music in a, in an interesting way not just the images of uh, of artists like Stevie Wonder and Bob Marley and Coltrane, um, but the movements, the, the strokes, the brush strokes that one sees in, in his work, it's, it's like rhythms. And um, you, it, to me, it's, it's very musical. Was there, did you have a chance to see his murals when they were still up in Springfield before they, the two that were restored came back? I did not. Uh, I I was living in the Upper Valley, Northampton, Amherst area, so I never got a chance to to see any of his works. By that time, by the time I got to Springfield, many had had disappeared, did not exist. But I'm I'm heartened by the fact that there are efforts underway to uh, find as well as catalog. Uh, the the murals. And we have uh, a, one of his students who is still working to to help discover some of them, which is wonderful. It is. <laughs> we have two already done in in the in the Mason Square neighborhood uh, that were done last year by the Fresh Paint folks, the Commonwealth Mural Collective, um, and they're they're looking to find more. And we hope to 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 do that. Yeah. I'd love to see some of the the works by the students. Right. The two that they've restored already are pretty, pretty fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me, Kari and Jerry, and just sharing some of your memories about Nelson Stevens. Thank you for having me. Of Phyllis. course. Their exhibit stays up through September, so if you have a chance to go and see it, you definitely should. Coming up, celebrating Juneteenth in North Adams with AJ Anchil of the Berkshire Black Economic Council and the organization's I Am Afro event happening this weekend. Plus, we're looking for your June experiences, which you can text to 1-800-639-9120 or email to thefab413 at nepm.org. This is the Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Saturday, the Berkshire Black Economic Council and the First Congregational Church of North Adams joined to bring us I Am Afro, a street fair for all the people. The free Juneteenth celebration on June 17, 2023 from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And I am joined by A.J. Engel, president and director of the Berkshire Black Economic Council. A.J. is a native of Pittsfield and since 2017 has performed constituent services and community outreach as a district aide for State Senator Adam Hines, who's also formerly the board coach 
Chair for Multicultural Bridge. AJ is a past board member of so many Berkshire community programs, including Berkshire Community Action Council, the C4 Arts Initiative, and the Berkshire County branch of the NAACP. He was named Berkshire 25 by Berkshire Magazine, and the Healy Driscoll Transition Policy Committee appointed AJ to serve as a co-chair for the Jobs and Flourishing Economics Transition Committee and has since been appointed to serve on the Governor's Advisory Committee on Black Empowerment for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. That's so many things. I feel like I am not mm-hmm. doing enough just reading bits of your CV. But oh, thank you I'm so sure much you for joining me. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, um, you said it was going to be a, a brief introduction. I feel like I could I could enter the uh, enter a contest right now um, with all <laughs> the, the, the positive shout outs and excitement. Well, I mean, like, take your flowers while you can, right? Now in the moment. Like, you've done a lot and a lot of it has been really cool, including this festival coming up. Now, before we get into it, I have a question. Like, are there actually two first congregational churches in North Adams? Because I was trying to figure out which one is actually collaborating with you and and it looks like there's two. So the church that we're partnering with is the first congregational church that is located on 134 Main Street in North Adams. Okay. I mean, the reason why North Adams has two first congregational church, like you can't both be first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna get. I'm not gonna get in the way of, of deciding I know that's, who's first. I know um, that's not your fight. Maybe more charged than I even. I'm even aware of. So <laughs> I know that's not your fight. But I, I was just. Curious curious because I was trying to find out more information about them and and bringing them in. Like, what was, did they reach out to you? Was this a thing? You were looking for partners to do a Juneteenth celebration and they answered the call? Great question. So this is, I'm going to speak on a few things related Mm -hmm. to that question. And I'll try to keep it aligned with the first question at hand. So we put our information, we put information out regarding statistics and data that would support how to make the arts in Berkshire County more trustworthy and inclusive. And there was a piece that was covered in the Berkshire Eagle because we had an event last summer called Sculpting Berkshire Afrofuturism. And that event was to really speak on the data findings that we developed via our Black Arts Council. So as you think about Berkshire BEC, we divided our economic development strategy into two parts. There's the work that we do via our enrichment committee, which helps support the private sector businesses. And then there's the Black Arts Council, which is aimed at empowering Black artists here in the region. So the Black Arts Council uh, surveyed Black residents and visitors to find data that would support Black people's needs so they could feel and we could feel more inclusive within the context of of the the culturals in Berkshire County. So when that piece um, ran, the first Congregational Church of North Adams then reached out to us and said, hey, we had this idea to organize a street fair to celebrate Black Pride. But at the same time, we know it's not our place to take the lead on this, but we do have the the human capital to step up and empower you all if this is something that you all would like to do. Because one of the findings that we had was to activate more street fairs. We Mm want to activate more uh, artist festivals. We want to have more uh, slam poetry and spoken word engagements and activities. So when they heard about the news, they got really excited, reached out to us. And this is this is this part two of the answering the question slash kind of getting into what we want to talk about, which is how to do DEIA, diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism the right way. You don't mm-hmm. have an idea and go march 
on that idea without bringing in the Black or BIPOC community from design to implementation, right? And I think sometimes we have white organizations or businesses, whatever have you, that are really excited and passionate and finding ways to help, but they're not including Black people or the the targeted groups at the onset. It's actually after the idea has been flushed out that now they're being reeled in, and that could be problematic for a number of reasons. That's when you start looking at some of the things that they've produced, maybe in anticipation of this project, and the community that they're supposed to be speaking to looks at those and go... You didn't have anybody you could run this by before yeah. you decided to like print that? Yeah. Like exactly. or or produce this? Like no one double checked their work here. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. we may have, you know, had a comment Comments. or a suggestion <laughs> about how to do this in a way that would make the the audience that you're trying to capture, in this case the black audience, feel respected or uh, appreciated. And and that's as equally important to to making the impact. Yeah. Just as important as them feeling included. Like exactly. You can't just be included. We have to be a, a part of it. You um, got it. So does this feel different throwing this street fair and throwing this event now that Juneteenth is an actual federal holiday? So there's something special about it. You know, this is it's it's relatively new that we've had this holiday signed into federal law. I mean, it's only been 2021. Here it is, 2020. Uh, Whole second anniversary of it being right? a federal holiday. <laughs> <laughs> but we've also been celebrating this in our in our country as Black people for for century, right? If not, excuse me, if not two, but more more publicly in, in certain settings right so mm-hmm. this is it's it's a, it's really special for us to be able to do this at this time because Berkshire County uh, I think the numbers being that we're only about eight percent of Berkshire County population so to have black people celebrated in this way and at this time is so necessary for sure I'm speaking with AJ Enchil president and director of Berkshire Black Economic Council I know you're reaching out to black businesses in the area to get them to table and just come and show out has there been excitement amongst black businesses in the Berkshires about doing this particular event absolutely we're getting uh, calls we're getting emails we're getting outreach through social media how can I join how can I participate there's a lot of enthusiasm and rightfully so it's a it's a time to increase the visibility of our local black vendors and to highlight their stories and get them in front of the other community members who will be looking to procure goods and services from black businesses because of their quality but also in the name of economic justice we got people just amped up about this weekend and we're just glad to be be hosting it is there a certain vibe you wanted to bring with this street fair to North Adams in particular? The vibe we want is authenticity. We want to highlight the Black experience as as a collective, right? We're not a monolith. We are people who have different lived experiences and socioeconomic status, but we all share Black joy, but also the impact of, of racism and having to tackle and, and take on racism with anti-racism day in, day out. And so, yes, to answer your question, yes. 
Is there any particular aspect of this festival that you're really, really excited about? And perhaps as a part B to this question, something that's happening that you think people might miss, but they should probably pay attention to. Really, there's a number of activities that will be going down on this day. We're going to have face painting for kids. We're going to have vendor food trucks. There will be live performances. There'll be a live interview. There will be uh, lawn games. It's loaded with fun, good food, music, and you can come at any part of the day and enjoy the activities and gain the educational components about the importance of Juneteenth by showing up and participating. I think some people know about the street fair. What we also want people to know is that after the street fair at Mass Mocha, there will be a live concert featuring Rach, Pittsfield's local legend, and Jasmine Janae. That'll begin at seven o'clock. You can find those on Mass Mocha's website. If you're browsing our website, BerkshireBEC.org, on our programming page, you can also find a link there. And the early bird tickets are still available if you buy them prior to June 17th. Which is awesome. It's just awesome. Do you feel like it's there's a certain significance to having a Juneteenth celebration in North Adams, given the Berkshires' connection to Black history with W.E.B. Du Bois, having several locations along the Underground Railroad? Like, Is it important to reclaim that part of history with this event too? Mm -hmm. I think that Juneteenth is about remembrance. It's about the remembrance of our struggle, but also our perseverance, how that perseverance has manifested in uh, marvelous experiments, artworks, expressionism. And for all those reasons, we need to share with the greater community and public that Black people are here in Berkshire County. We are working on a number of ways to improve the community, not just for Black people, but for the Berkshires as a whole. And it's empowering for the youth who are make up this community to see themselves represented as business owners or as artists because they are the next leaders and that reflection of self can be so empowering. And so in the name of self-determination and cooperative <laughs> economics, this is why we're throwing uh, this day of celebration in North Adams. We're going to continue to emphasize that Black iconic figures have existed in Berkshire County and they still exist today and they're doing marvelous work. Up next... More with AJ Enchil about I Am Afro and about working through the governor's office on initiatives for the peoples. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. I'm speaking with AJ Enchil, president and director of Berkshire Black Economic Council. Segue a little bit and ask you about a couple of things in your ginormous CV. Like one of the benefits of my job is that I truly get to speak to some like just amazing brown people and I love it. But how has it been working for the Healy Driscoll administration? So, You're currently on, on the advisory committee on black empowerment for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But yeah, how has that been? It is such an honor. It's a tremendous honor to, to be like 
I call myself AJ from the block, right? Like, <laughs> I, I I literally grew up in downtown Pittsfield. You know, I still see my teachers from when I was in elementary school around. And it's great to see that our work as BBEC is being recognized on the state level. And then to then be in meetings with these tremendous leaders throughout the Commonwealth who are teaching me about what's going on in their respective communities and the work that they're doing, it is so inspiring and it keeps me feeling motivated in the times that, like, I'll be totally honest with you, it's not easy day in, day out to be performing at this level as a team and working with other organizations, political agendas, seeking funding and making it all work. But we do make it work because we have passionate and driven people on our team. And I'm getting to learn about those passionate and driven people who are on this Black Empowerment Council. And I get goosebumps when I start up the Zoom to just think like, whoa, that's that's Tanisha Sullivan, you know? It's just, it's amazing to be in, in the presence of all of that greatness. Do you get to kind of commiserate about the burden of ambassadorship? Do you know what I, I mean? Like being the only one in the room or being the one organization in the room, even if there's a group of you, there's a certain burden of that and expectation that comes with that that sometimes is extra heavy. Does that lighten a little bit being a part of this council, being surrounded by all of that, that excellence where you get to kind of be yourself and then be more than yourself, be excellent on top of it. Mm -hmm. When you ask the question, the way that you asked it made me think about it in two ways. Because I I was born in a predominantly white community, the perspective I carry and uh, what Du Bois has also raised, which is the problem of the, the 20th century will be the, the problem of the color line. So there's the way that I perceive myself, but there's the way that others perceive me. I see myself as AJ from the block. Someone else sees me as as a threat or uh, a challenge to their existence just by my very presence. So when I'm in that space with those Black leaders, I don't have to worry about how I'm conveying my ideas so long as my ideas are being conveyed in a respectful way. And I think other Black leaders in other communities, depending on where they are, may or may not feel the need to police their thoughts. Because I've grown up in this predominantly white community, I've already had to work through that at an earlier age to express myself and to be my authentic self in spaces. So I don't police my thoughts so much when I'm in larger meetings. Although I say that with a little caveat, because I, of course, kind of do. <laughs> I mean, code switching is real. And right. it is in a lot of ways more than a survival tactic, right? So that makes sense. This is the first celebration of Juneteenth that North Adams has had, correct? Let's it's just... <laughs> It's possible. <laughs> but I, I would imagine I would imagine it's happened that, in other ways. Like, so I don't want to right. be dismissive of what others have, have probably worked very hard on. Uh, Let's say it's almost size, certainly the first of, of the 21st century. Of 2023. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> We're being followed. So it's the first that your organization is throwing. 
Yes. We'll go there we that. go. That's the story okay. we're sticking with. We'll go, well, that, that's, it's a fine story. Are there things that you weren't able to do this year that you were looking forward to bringing next year? I'm assuming that this is maybe going to become an annual thing or maybe it'll evolve into something different. Who knows? Who knows? I, I really think that what next year will become, we will begin to learn after June 17th because we're going to meet some people who will would have just heard about this and the week leading up who we haven't had correspondence with, but they're going to show up because they want to be there and to support this initiative. And who knows where that relationship will go and, and what will transpire and, and how the ideating with these new relationships and new connections we have will transpire to something even greater because now we're collaborating with more. And I think my last question is, is it too late for someone to set up a remedial spades table so that I don't embarrass myself at further cookouts because I'm tired of it? You mean uh, with with how? What do you, what do you I am a bad, bad spades player because my family plays Bidwist oh. and I am just bad. People keep trying to invite me in and I'm like, yeah, don't. Maybe I'll be over here watching from afar. And it's embarrassing because my cousins are good and my sisters, like my sister is good and I am a terrible terrible spades player here's what you and i can sit on the sidelines because i'm not a spades player either and so you'll have comfort in that you and i can yeah. just watch just start an organization or, kind or of you like, and I can like just stir the pot and just be like eh, well, <laughs> you know <laughs> start looking and giving people false advice we'll be on opposite teams so that everybody gets a handicap <laughs> yep yep yeah exactly exactly a level <laughs> <the> playing field <laughs> AJ Enchel is the president and director of the Berkshire Black Economic Council, which throws I Am Afro, a street fair for everybody this Saturday, starting at 11, but goes until late, including some stuff happening at Mass Mocha. AJ, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Thanks again to Asia Anchel for joining me. And we're looking for your stories of Juneteenth. Have you celebrated it all along? Have you just found out about the holiday and are looking for ways to engage? Hint, hint, we're going to give you some this week. Send us an email at thefab413 at nepm.org, or you can text us 1-800-639-9120. Tomorrow on the show, a whole lot of history going on. We'll have Tammy Dinas Mumbet to join us to talk about her upcoming performance at Historic Deerfield. And local historian Erica Slocum will chat with us not just about her Black Holyoke Oral History Project, but also the Juneteenth celebration happening at the Wisteria Hearst Museum next Monday on actual Juneteenth. That's a week from today, people. Plus, we will meet the new market director for the Belchertown Farmers and Artisans Market, Katie Bobbins. Our director is Tony Chaperone for the week done. Our engineer is Betsy. It's only two clicks, Lankto. Our technical team is Bart, just building a new one, Rankin. Kara, taking inspiration from Octopus's Foster and punk rude boy Dubay. Many musical thanks to Spouse Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Brand New Heavies, Willie Hutch, Donald Byrd, Homebody, The Brass, and John Williams. I'm Khalees Smith. Monty Belmonte is at the beach, and we all envy him, but we'll see you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.